Welcome to another podcast from Generations Church. We trust you will be encouraged today. Today is a, uh, is a one-off message. Um, been working our way to getting to this one for a long time now. And uh, it's called The Family Table. And I think that it's important that we, we talk about this because it's actually a, a, a much more profound biblical principle and reality than I think people are aware of. Um, it used to be commonplace in our world, our society, that people understood. If you talked about the family table, you knew there were immediately some rules. Um, there were some protocols that had to be followed. Who remembers one of the rules? Who, who, has, who recalls a rule? Like if I say family table, somebody yell out a rule. No hats. No hats. That's the one I had in mind too. No singing, no elbows, right? Like we used to have a protocol and a, and a tradition of the family table. And if I was to ask you this morning to bow your heads and close your eyes, and, and if I asked the question, how would I ask it? I would say, raise your hand if you eat at a family table more than three times a week. I would be curious how many people would actually raise their hand. And now some would, I know, because I know we have people who understand and value that uh, tradition, but I think more and more in our world, in our society, even inside the church, this is something that has been lost. And so here's, here's what I want you to hear first of all. The family itself is under attack. Now this is no surprise to you. Um, this is not something new if you've been watching media, if you watch, if you watch what's going on in the world around us. Specifically, the nuclear family is under attack. And it's been under attack actually for a lot longer than we realize. Um, I'm even gonna, I'll throw Disney under the bus because I don't care. Um, but, but just think, think back to this, and, and, and I'm, let me frame this for you in why I say the family is under attack. Who is, who is the idiot in every Disney movie that has ever been made after, say, the 1960s? It's Dad, right? Dad, he's, he's a rule baron. He's over, think of the Little Mermaid. Like, what a jerk that guy was. He won't let his little princess daughter do what she wants, and he won't this, and he won't that. And so th- there's this whole identity being built, an attack on the family that says, well, first of all, parents are a weak excuse for authority. They're not appropriate. It's better to follow your own arrow wherever it points. I mean, you can just see the dissemination of how things go. And, and, and so I'm not, I'm not preaching a message on how to get back there this morning, but there's a component that's a really important part of this. Uh, and these are really dark times that we're living in. There are incredibly demonic things taking place in our world. Incredibly demonic, and, and it's, not, it's not hiding, it's not subtle, it is overtly demonic, it is overtly spiritual. And so I think that uh, where we come to be restored in these times is an important thing to understand. Uh, and so there's a table, and we might not talk about it that often, in fact I can't think of the last time I would have preached on the table, but in the Bible, the symbolism of the table is actually very, very important. It's significant. And not because it has a special power, not because it has uh, some key to a secret, but it's special in its symbolism because of both its form and its function. And so, well, what is the function of of a table? This is a really hard question to answer. What is the function of a table? If we are to say it without complicating things, it holds up important things off the ground. That's, that's essentially what a table does, right? Uh, the ground is a dirty place. The ground is a place symbolically uh, of disrespect and filth and those kinds of things. And so the function of a table and the form of a table do something very important. They set things apart. They keep things up and off the ground. They keep things clean. Those of you who have ever prepared food appreciate a table, right? Have you ever, has anybody seen this in your social media reels? But I think it's somewhere in India and this, probably this guy who's an amazing street chef, uh, but he's holding pieces of chicken with his toes, and then he's 
he's using his toes and a knife in his hand to, 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 to dismember this chicken to throw in a pot. And I, I mean, let's face it, who of you would eat at that restaurant? If you knew they're preparing food using their toes, most of us would be like, nope, I'm, out. I'm not doing that. And, and so the idea of what a table does, you probably can appreciate when it comes to preparation of something like food, but it's actually a lot more than that. Uh, the function of a table is to keep things off the ground, it's to keep things up and safe, it's to keep things in a more sanitary condition. But I want you to understand this this morning. In, in a biblical understanding, a table is a place of sacrifice, it's a place of service, and it's a place of celebration. That's what a table is, symbolically in Scripture, okay? It's a place of sacrifice, service, and celebration. It's also a place of community, connection, and calibration. Now, some of you might see what I did there because you understand the phonetics of what just happened. The, the, first, the first three were all S sounds, but then I changed it to a C, and then I went to the hard consonant C sound for the next three. See what I did? I know, it's brilliant. So some of you can't even fathom the brilliance, I know. So it's sacrifice, service, and celebration, community, connection, and calibration. Now, if you're a parent in this room, you should be amening already. Because how many of you calibrate your family at the dinner table? I do. My gosh, that is, I calibrate my family at the, at the, at the dinner table. My wife calibrates me at the dinner table. I calibrate her at the dinner table. But it's also the other things. It's celebration. And there's sacrifice that goes into that table. And there is service. My kids still don't understand that someone has to set the table. And it's funny to me because we all want to be more like Jesus. We all want to be spiritually important. And then when teenagers come to the request of a parent, hey, would you guys set the table? What's the teenager's response? <laughs> that's their response isn't it can I get an amen somebody amen. right that's what they do teenagers and they forget what does the Bible say that the Lord himself prepares a table in the presence of our enemies so teenagers if you're within the sound of my voice this morning change your flipping attitude because when your parents ask you to prepare the table in the home God is not above preparing a table for you and I and we could just go home on that, but I got more. I got notes and notes and notes and notes. And this will be the shortest preach ever. <laughs> I just feel like I have permission to actually lie outright when I say that, you know? Um, all right. So it's, it's this place of community, uh, community and connection, calibration. Gathering at a table does something amazing for us. It compels the members of a household or a group to look at each other. Doesn't it? How's your table set up? Forces us to look at each other. It's really hard not to when we're sitting together at a table. It, 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 it compels us to come together in some form of unity. And I know because I have kids too and I'm a married man too, it's not always really a nice kind of unity, but nonetheless, we're there to be nourished, we're there to eat and uh, to learn how to eat. Think back to your, your little baby days Lower Shell family, you guys know what this is like. How's that baby days going for you? Where kids learn how to eat at a table. Babies learn how to use a spoon and eventually a fork, and God help us, a knife at the table, don't they? Kids learn how to serve. We learn how to reserve. We learn how to respect each other. Mara had to fight for her place of respect at our family table. Everyone else would talk, and she was this quiet little mousy thing for a good part of her life. And then one day, she'd had enough, and she had a fit, and, and this is my representative table today. And, and basically, Mara did this. It's my turn to talk! 
poor little thing. I don't, how old was she? She was pretty little. But five, five years old, six, seven years old, somewhere in there. And she had just had it. She, know, she never got to have a voice. And so one day she found her voice. And she let us know that she was, in fact, present and intellectually engaged with everything and just needed to be heard. And, and, and so the, the table, the family table, is an incredibly important and valuable place. It's where many family devotionals happen. It's where many children say their first prayer. Many, many children learn how to pray at the family table. And it's a place of intimacy. It's where we celebrate birthdays and anniversaries, where we celebrate the good things, where we mourn if someone dies. We gather at a table. Church, the family table is a profoundly impactful and powerful place that God has given us in our lives. And it's God's idea. Don't, get, don't think that, oh, the table is just a practical formation of society. Like everything else in this world that God created, there is a purpose and there is a sanctified reality to what that table is supposed to do. And all the way back into the days of the tabernacle when, when the Israelites were traveling in the wilderness, in both the tabernacle and the temple, uh, there was a very, very important article. And we often think... We often think of the articles of the tabernacle or temple and we think of the lavers and the, and the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, the tent itself. We've talked about many of those things, but there's this incredibly important article in the stations of tabernacle worship. And it's what's called the table of showbread. The bread of the presence. And some of you could probably already finish preaching this message at this point today. But this is what it says in Exodus 25, 23 to 20. Make a table of acacia wood, two cubits long, a cubit wide, and a cubit and a half high. Overlay it with pure gold and make a gold molding around it. Also make, a, make around it a rim, a handbreadth wide, and put gold molding on the trim. Make four gold rings for the table and fasten them to the four corners where the four legs, the rings are to be close to the rim to hold the poles used in carrying the table. Make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold and carry the table with them. And make its plates and dishes of pure gold, as well as its pitchers and bowls for the pouring out of offerings. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. This is God's instruction to the Israelites when they're creating the pieces of the tabernacle, the, the articles of worship, the formation of what it would look like for, for mankind to come into contact with the Almighty God. Now, now, why some of these things? I, I think this is actually always interesting to understand a little bit better why God chose. Like, why were his instructions so specific? Like, why acacia wood? Well, if you, might, you might not know this, but acacia wood, in a word, is incorruptible. Acacia wood um, is known for its durability, which means it can't be scratched very easily. It's a, it's a really tough wood. It's water-resistant, and it doesn't warp readily, so it holds whatever moisture it has. It, it doesn't change a lot with the ambient humidity around it. It's highly resistant to things like fungus and bacteria. It's kind of antiseptic or naturally antibacterial, and therefore it was safe to use for preparing food. Acacia wood's a very amazing wood. It's an incorruptible material. And what about gold? Because gold is the other part. The, the table of the presence, the bread of the presence, is made out of two things which are both incorruptible. Acacia wood overlaid with gold. And gold, in a word, of course, is incorruptible. In fact, gold is so interesting because once it's refined, 
it's pure and really can't be changed from its purity. The only way to do that would actually be to melt the gold back down and melt other alloys and then introduce them into the gold and keep that all fired and stirred together. But here's the amazing thing that happens. When a refiner has gold with other alloys in it, you know what he does? He just heats it up a little more. And what happens? All the other alloys begin to separate back out of the gold. God chose acacia wood and gold for the building of some of these things because they are two materials that you and I can understand are incorruptible. They can't be changed by outside things. They can be misused. They can be misrepresented. They can be misunderstood. But in the elemental basis of what they are, they are relatively incorruptible. The table also had rings on it and where else did you see rings in the instructions of the building of the tabernacle? It was on the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had two rings on it through which they would put acacia poles, once again overlaid with gold, so that when the Levites carried it, they weren't touching the Ark because if you touched the Ark, you died. And some of you might remember the story of Uzzah who, when the oxen stumbled and the cart tipped over, he tried to steady the cart, touch the Ark, and he was struck dead in the presence of God. The table has the same kind of rings on it to be carried by the same kind of poles. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that if you touch the table, you're going to die. It, the table is not the Ark of the Covenant. Let me be clear about that. But nonetheless, it was holy and it was set apart. And we know that because it had the four rings on it to be carried by the acacia poles, just like the Ark of the Covenant ones, so that it wouldn't be corrupted or tarnished or touched by unclean hands. So please understand this. The table of the Lord, the symbolism of this biblical table is an incorruptible table. And here, church, what I need you to understand today is that God intends for you and I, for all of us, to have a table in our home where God's intent for us is that that table is incorruptible. That's why Satan doesn't bother to profane the table in your home. He just offers a distraction to it. Started in the 1950s with the invention of a television. And people would put that at first maybe in the living room, but not too long after that, it kind of moved into the dining area. Because the table is the table. And guys, make no mistake, this is what's going on in the world, the spiritual reality around us. Satan cannot corrupt what God has made incorruptible. The fellowship, the unity, the presence of God in a family or in a church is an incorruptible thing. But what Satan can do is he can offer an alternative. And that's exactly what he did. He began to offer an alternative in black and white. And then one day, technicolor. And when Satan realized, now I'm giving the devil a little too much credit here, but it's just for the purpose of making the message sink in. When Satan realized that it was inconvenient for people to get up and put tinfoil on bunny ears. <laughs> he began to exploit better and newer technology that just made it easier and easier. And for the longest time, at least you had to leave, you had to leave the table to really go and participate in the distraction in your home. But eventually the distraction moved closer and closer to the table until we get to the point today where the distraction is so small, you literally can bring it with you wherever you go. You can take part in the table and never make eye contact with anyone else. 
Never really pay attention to what anyone else is saying. Never really have to participate. Because Satan can't corrupt the table. See, he can't corrupt the things that are built with the purpose of God. But he can offer a distraction. And I'm not here preaching today that cell phones are bad. I, my opinion since I was a much younger man was that the internet and the technology we have today is to the church what Romans what, to, to, to the church today what Roman roads were to the early church. There was a lot of corruption on the Roman road. There, there was a lot of there was thieves, there was rapists, there was bandits, there was soldiers who were misbehaving. There was all kinds of horrible, wicked, evil things. But those roads also allowed the gospel to be spread to the entire known world. And so I don't want to tell you today that, oh, if you just ban Christians, just ban the technology, just get rid of your phone. Just, no, 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 understand what it is. It can be a distraction that takes you away from something that God has intended to be set apart and holy. Or it can serve the mission of your life. It's just a thing. This phone is amoral. The internet, for the record, is amoral. There's all kinds of morality pumped into it, but in and of itself, just like money, just like dirt, just like anything else, it's just a thing. What you do with it determines its moral bent. So understand, please, that the table of the Lord is an incorruptible table. Did you know that the church is a table? This, this church, Generations Church, is a type of table. And Satan loves to distract people from this table, too. He loves to keep people away from it by placing another altar near it. Satan truly can't corrupt the church. And I know it's hard because we look around the world and we can see a lot of corruptible, what appears to be corruptible church. But the true bride of Christ, the blood-bought and paid-for bride of Christ, is actually and truly incorruptible. It is being taken from a place of corruption to perfection by the blood of Jesus. And you know that Satan can't reverse that. Because the Bible says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. It's already done. And if Jesus died once and for all, that literally means that he died once and for all. Satan has a hard time rolling back salvation. Because why? Because the body of Christ in its true form and its true identity is an incorruptible body. It is a glorious church, we used to sing, without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Incorruptible. Well, Pastor, I, but, but, yeah, I know there's a lot of corrupted people. Some days I'm less than incorruptible, so are you. Hear me. Satan can't corrupt the true church. So he sets up an altar beside it. A distraction. Always something ready to receive your eyes and lead you to a different place. So you might start to think sometimes then that the table is something itself to be worshipped. Well, it's holy. It's amazing. It's set apart. It's incorruptible. We should worship this thing. No, you shouldn't. 
The Israelites didn't worship the table in the tabernacle, and Christians today shouldn't worship the table being the church. They shouldn't worship the family. It's precious. It's set apart. But what makes the, what makes the table special? Well, you already said, Pastor Trav, it was acacia wood and gold. No, I said that was the construction of it. And the purpose of the construction was so that it would be incorruptible. But what actually makes the table relevant? What actually makes the table special? What actually makes the table truly anointed and valuable? The bread of the presence. The bread of the presence. Most scholars and, and, and theological writings call it the showbread. And I've actually always hated that. I'm sorry if that loses me a jewel or part of a crown in heaven. And they called it the showbread because it was reserved. No one could eat it except for the priests at a very, very specific time. Except for also David and his men were hungry, and they one day went, into, went in and ate the showbread, and they, they weren't supposed to, and everybody thought they were going to die and there was going to be big trouble. But it was a foreshadowing of what was to come. So I don't like calling it the table of showbread. Because God himself refers to it as the table that holds the bread of the presence. And that's very significant. The table of the bread of the presence. What is the bread of the, te- uh, what is the, bread of the presence? Well, in the Old Testament, it was an offering to be continually before the Lord. Um, we read it, verse 30 the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. And we move into the New Testament and we see that Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the bread of life. John 6, 32 to 20, or, oh boy, I don't know what you guys wrote down there. 6, 32 to 35. Um, it says that Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Jesus is the bread of the presence. Jesus is the bread of the presence. And why do I say the church is a table? Well, you can probably figure this out because you're actually really brilliant people. If Jesus is the bread of the presence, where does the bread of the presence rest? Well, it rests in the church. It rests in your life and my life because Jesus is the life, the bread that came down and now lives in us if we've given our lives over, if we're followers of him. And when we gather corporately, little tables all, we become one big table. And what happens? Well, the table is for the bread of the presence, the bread of life to sit on so that it will always be before God and before people. And your life and my life, when we come together for a church service, holds up the bread of the presence. It literally holds Jesus in as much as it can be literal and metaphoric. There's three tables that I want to now bring you, bring your your focus over to. And they matter for our past, our present, and our future. Because in in what they are, that's exactly what they're representing. The first table that uh, that we saw in Scripture, for our purposes this morning, is the Passover table. When the blood of the sacrificial lamb was applied over the doorposts, 
while the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt. The Lord and the angel of death, the Bible records, went over those houses. And any house that was marked with the blood of the lamb on its doorposts, the, children, the, 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 the oldest child of that family was spared. And any house that was not covered by the mark of the blood of the lamb, the angel of death, the Bible says, went in and took the firstborn of all the people, of all the cattle, the livestock. An incredible and terrifying moment of history. The children of God were preserved by the blood of the Lamb, even though death was present across the whole nation. And now that we understand that Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, that he has become our Passover Lamb. He has become the Lamb whose blood was shed to mark the doorposts of our homes, of our lives, so that we would not be touched by death. Now that we understand he's that atoning sacrifice for the sins of the world, He's our Passover. The Passover table serves as a type of foreshadow of the death of the Lord. Just like that sacrificed lamb was killed, its blood was shed. The whole process of Passover, the celebration for a couple thousand years of Israelite history, all pointing towards the day when Jesus would become the Passover lamb and fulfill that requirement of the law, fulfill that requirement of justice for us. And it's interesting because Jesus then maneuvered and levered the Passover celebration into the understanding of what would come next. And Jesus gave really clear instructions to his disciples to prepare that table. If you don't think that a table is important, like I said, teenagers, listen when mom and dad say, prepare the table, you remember that God prepares the table in the presence of your enemies. You're not above that call. You're not above that responsibility. It is an opportunity to be a little bit more like God. It is. Jesus gives very clear instructions to the disciples in Luke 22, 7 through 16. He says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So this was a... This was celebrated. This wasn't just one year of Jesus' life. Every year that Jesus lived on this earth, every single year, they celebrated the Passover. This was one of the customs, one of the practices of his life. So go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare it, they asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man... Now, this is, this is just prophetic Jesus doing his thing, right? So... He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. Just the imagery of Jesus reclining at this table is powerful to me. Jesus' instruction for the Passover celebration was deliberate because he wanted to connect understanding of Passover to the understanding of who he is for us. He used that very same Passover table celebration that, that moment he had to introduce what we know now as the Lord's table. 
the Lord's Supper, communion. And this is why it's a sacrament to the church, not just to the Catholic church, but to the church everywhere. Communion is a sacred act. And every time we eat bread and drink the cup, we tell you this all the time, whenever we do communion, it's not just supposed to be a one-off once in a while, but every day there is to be a holy and a sacramental table set up in our lives where we remember and proclaim, proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. The second table is the Lord's table. What, re- what, what Paul refers to as the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, which was first seen in the book of Acts 2.42. People had been baptized, had their sins forgiven, had been steadfastly added to the church, the kingdom of God. In Acts 2.42 it says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing meals, including the Lord's supper and to prayer. Some of your Bibles will say, into the breaking of bread. But it is referring and inclusive to the act of communion and the practice of the Lord's Supper. The Lord's table was then spread for the saints of God on every Lord's Day, on every Sunday. And it's at, that, it's at this second table, the Lord's table, that Jesus commands this word, do this in remembrance of me. Let me just talk to you about one distraction that is horrifying to me. Jesus' monologue at this last meal. This is, this is profound and frightening to me. But Jesus says what? This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in this present day, in the world around us, with the, the talk about abortion, what it is, what it isn't, raging. I just want to draw this. The, 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 see, see, Satan cannot corrupt the table. He can't corrupt God's table. So he, he sets up a demonic, a satanic Eucharist, a, a counterfeit of the Lord's Supper. And what is the thing that people who participate in that say? This is my body. It's my choice. The devil is a liar, but he is awfully smart. Terribly smart. And I don't want you to to miss this. That is not an accident, church. But once again, he cannot corrupt what God has made holy. And so he has to counterfeit and offer a distraction. Make no mistake. It's a serious thing. But the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table is about remembrance right now in this moment. See, the Passover was the past. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table is every time we eat, every time we drink, we're going to remember the Lord's death. We're going to proclaim it until he comes. Paul told the Corinthian people that by partaking in the meal at the Lord's Table, they were proclaiming that fact. And the third supper, the third table, sorry, is that of the wedding feast of the Lamb. And this is speaking to the future. We had the, pre- the past, the present, and the future. The wedding feast of the Lamb, or that table for the Lamb of God, is the third table of Jesus. And, and he said, I will eat this bread and drink this fruit of the vine anew with you 
During the eating and drinking, the Apostle John informs us in Revelation chapter 19, the time has arrived for the marriage of the Lamb, and his bride is prepared. She was instructed to dress in a bright, spotless clothing and fine linen, symbolizing the saint's noble actions. Then the Lord instructed John to write something extremely important, saying, write, blessed are those that are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Now let's read that. I just gave you a quick overview paraphrase. Well, let's read this together. Revelation 19, 7 through 10. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Listen, these tables are, these tables are so significant. And, and forgive me if I keep saying that again and again to you. I just hope that at some point in time, it sticks and goes down deep. One thing I know about farming is if you want a good harvest, put in a lot of seed. Don't be stingy on your seed. Put more in the ground. Put more in. Put more in. The tables are important, speaking to the past, present, and future of what Jesus has done, is doing, and will do in our future. So let me try to apply this to our tables today. And I want to give you three places there is to be a table in your life, in our lives. There is to be a table in marriage. There is to be a table in your marriage. There is a table in a family or in a household. And there is a table in the church. A marriage needs a holy table. It needs a, a sturdy table built of incorruptible parts. Because it's going to foster what comes next in a marriage relationship. Well, what's the natural progression of a marriage relationship? Well, it's a family. To foster the future of a family, intimacy one before your kids show up is an intimacy that is much, much easier to find and maintain. So maybe you're married or just married. Maybe you're dating. And I want you this morning to consider that table for your life. If you're dating, let me tell you this, guys. If you're dating right now and there is no table, it might be time to move on. There has to be a table that is incorruptible, that is holy, that is set apart by God, built by him for him. Because God wants to do great and amazing things on that in your life. So there has to be a table. If you don't have one, get after God. Find it, build it together. A table in the family, well, I hope at this point that's not lost on you and doesn't need a whole lot of explanation at this point. There's a family table. But then I want to talk about this table that is in the church, or rather that the church is actually a sort of table. Because see, what, what happens is, is we gather, and we're, we're compelled, we're forced to see each other. And you might be good at disguising your heart. 
You might be good at walking in with a fake smile. You might be good at walking in just real grouchy. I don't know, whatever our deals are. But that, that's not the point. The point is to be seen. That's the point of community. That's the point of getting together. It's one of the reasons why Scripture says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as has become the habit of some people. When we gather, we're made to see each other. I laugh because week after week as a father, I see our church do all the things my family does and has done. I see it. And I'm not really talking about the good things right now. <laughs> Awkward moment. But for the sake of our future as a church, let me speak to this. Everyone here, every person in this place this morning is a member of the family. You belong at this table. Might even be your first Sunday here. And we're glad you're here. And we welcome you to this table. We're happy that you're a part of it. We hope you get something out of it. We hope that you leave refreshed. We hope that you feel seen and loved and known. But even more, we hope that God meets you, whatever your area of need might be. We come to this table as a church and we partake in the bread of life. We hear the word of God. We embrace and we worship Jesus, the bread of life who came down from heaven. Week after week, we gather as a community, in community, for connection, to be calibrated, to be adjusted by the Spirit of God. And we come to this table to offer our sacrifices of praise, to serve in the presence of Jesus, and to celebrate all that he's done for us. That's the table of the church. But as members of that family table, can I ask you today, what are you? What are you? Because the family table has a very interesting collage of humans, doesn't it? The family table has babies and infants. A family table is a messy place. Sometimes it smells like crap because the baby has a dirty diaper. Sometimes people vomit because kids get sick. But I would not trade one meal with my babies at my table, and neither would you, for anything in this world. Babies are difficult, babies are messy, but babies also bring joy, and to a church, the story is the same. We have people who have just started their relationship with Jesus sitting in these chairs this morning. That's amazing and exciting. And they're trying to figure out how to use a fork or a spoon, and all the mamas in the house are like, ah, 
Not a fork, not a knife. A soft rubber spoon. And it's good because there's dads in this house. I'm like, give him a steak knife. He'll choke, he'll be fine. He needs to learn. See, because it takes everybody in a family. It takes everybody in this family. So babies, they make a mess. We also have toddlers, pre-adolescents. They're worse than babies. Well, they're harder than babies. Because they're in that training phase. And they still make a mess, and from time to time, they still throw up at the dinner table. Not as often. They're not teething anymore. Well, unless their bigger brother punched a tooth out of their face. Which could happen. Toddlers are really messy. They get spaghetti everywhere. It's funny because babies kind of get it all over themselves in their chair, their high chair. Toddlers and kids and pre-adolescents, they manage to get it just all over the table, all over the floor, all over the chair, everywhere but themselves. And then there's also teenagers, of course. Thank God for teenagers. It's what reminds us that we're not saved all the way yet. These teenagers come to the table and they do this. I get a witness. Yeah. And then you have those teenagers that are grown up but haven't left home yet. <laughs> this is them. Oh, I've seen you. It's like, go to bed. I'm not tired. help clean up supper. <laughs> and then the family table has a mom and a dad who in my house is often quite frustrated and angry. Gosh, Jesus, help me. It's got a mom who's often frustrated. Kids, how many times have I asked you to do womp, 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 womp. <laughs> I'm just telling it how it is. And then at Christmas time, drunk uncle shows up. <laughs> well, I was losing here. And <laughs> Family table is a diverse place. And I need you to understand that that is also a church. But my question, if you remember before we got into this silliness, what was my question? Which one are you? Now listen, it's okay if you're a baby. I love 
us to have some babies in this house. I love for us to have some little, little Christian babies sitting at this table making a huge mess. I don't mind as long as someone changes the diapers and it's not always me. I love it. That's why we're here. And I love the toddler stage. I love the learning to walk stage. I love when a little boy gets turned loose with a knife for the first time. It is the most dangerous thing. Just ask Logan. He almost cut his own finger off when he was four or five years old. Literally, I'm not exaggerating. He literally almost cut off his finger. About a half a millimeter away from a total dismemberment. And my response as a dad was, oh, baby, we're going to the hospital. Don't ask any questions. Throw me a bunch of tea towels. Do not come down here and look at this. We are going to the hospital. Because I, I just love that stage of life. And I love teenagers. Man, teenagers are the very, very worst and they're the very, very best. Because they have almost impossibly endless energy. And I love young adults because they want to go deep and they want to find out what God has for them. And they're asking all the hard questions and all the right questions. What should I do? Who should I marry? Who am I becoming? What the heck? How can I hear from God? I don't feel like God even talks to me, Pastor. What am I doing wrong? And thank Jesus for some parents. That this church has some parents in it who come alongside and say, hey, we, we understand. We got this. We're with you. This church even has some grandparents. People who can sit back and say, yeah, you'll learn. Yeah, we've been there. Back in my day, it was all cloth diapers. We washed them. Which one are you? Are you a member of this table that has temper tantrums? Again, it's, it's okay if you're a toddler. Are you in the teenage phase right now? Why do I have to set the table? I set the table last week. I set the table every week. Like literally, now that Amy's hurt, I literally set the table every week. <laughs> every day. Are you aloof? Are you disconnected because you're just distracted by anything but the table God has called you to be at? Do you understand where I'm going, church? Do you understand what I'm asking you this morning? Are you learning how to eat, how to be obedient, how to participate? Are you a teen too cool to help out, or do you see the opportunity to become mature and to be invited into the adulthood and the maturity that you so desperately want to be invited into? Are you a father or a mother trying to lead by example in service, in prayer, in worship? Or are you just that relative that shows up once in a while, whether for good or evil? I'm asking because in the building of a church, there's a building of a family so that families can actually be built up. Worship team, you can come on back. <laughs> Five minutes too. Feeling good now. I want to close with this message once again. Every single person in this room is a sinner. 
everyone. You're disqualified according to the standard of God's perfection. And we needed, therefore, someone to come who could meet the standard, who could be the sacrifice, who could pay the price for us. And he did. He came. Born of a virgin, in a stable, grew up, lived a sinless life. He died a death that he didn't deserve for us. And the reason we share this week after week in the church is because this is the best news that humanity has ever heard. And it always will be the best news. That perfect sinless man, Jesus, he died on a cross and he went to the grave. The Bible actually reveals not only did he go to the grave, but he actually descended to hell so that you and I didn't have to. And then on the third day, by the power of God himself, Jesus is raised back to life. The Bible doesn't record that there was any conscious eyewitnesses to his walking out of the tomb. There was a couple Roman soldiers laying there passed out, they freaked out and lost their crap when the angel came down to roll the stone away. But Jesus came out of that tomb and he appeared to his followers. He ate with them. He drank with them. He gave them very clear instructions on what they should do and not only what they should do, but what the church should do until he returned. And then after assuring them that if they waited, they would receive the Holy Spirit, he ascended into heaven where the Bible says now he sits at the right hand of God making intercession for all of us. And that's a pretty big, spectacular story for you and I today. But I want to offer you this assurance. Because I think somewhere deep down inside, all human beings ask the question, am I really acceptable to God? Am I truly acceptable to him? In your sin, you literally are not acceptable to him. In your sin, you are literally not acceptable because he's perfect. But here's this miraculous thing that happens is when we come through Jesus, his perfection is given for our imperfection. You say, well, that's fine, but but God won't accept me. Why would I think that Jesus would accept me? Here's why. Because in John 6, 35 to 40, now listen to me. Listen to the truth of the word of God. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. Now listen. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And if this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For the Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, that is Jesus, and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day. That's the gospel. 
That's the gospel. See, Jesus can't turn you away. It's not in his nature to turn away someone who comes to him. It's not in his heart to turn you away. So my friend, wherever you're sitting this morning, I urge you, come to Jesus. And for those of you who already have a relationship with him, I urge you, come to Jesus. Because he doesn't withhold any good thing from you or I. That he freely gives it. So whatever you might need this morning, we're going to have an altar call. Prayer team is going to come as we sing this last song. It doesn't matter what it is. You need prayer this morning, I invite you to come. You need to have Jesus become the Lord of your life this morning, you come. You let us pray with you. You need a miracle. You need a healing. You just need a fresh touch from God this morning. Revival is sitting right here at this altar in the presence of God this morning. You just come. Let me pray. Let's stand together. Let me pray for you. Father, we come in the name of Jesus this morning to say thank you for all that has been done in our lives. And God, I pray that you would just give courage by your Holy Spirit to each person this morning who needs a change, who needs a response to you today, God. Holy Spirit, you're the one who removes fear. You're the one who can cast out doubt. And Father, I pray today would be the day for someone's salvation, that this would be a day of someone's healing, that this would be a day of transformation for every single purpose for person here. We pray all this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us in another podcast from Generations Church. If you enjoyed listening today, please subscribe to our podcast channel to get a new one each week. For additional information or to partner with us, please check out our website at www.genchurch.ca.